This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. The hand cannot alone deliver man. The body must cooperate with the hand if the hand is to rescue the perishing. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. In today's episode, we're talking about Hudson Taylor and his sermon, The Source of Power. He preached it at Carnegie Hall near the end of his life in the year 1900. Joel, this episode is close to me because I lived in China for two years. And in the 1990s, the world found out that the Church of China was doing uh, really well, actually. We knew that there was suffering. We knew that there was persecution. We knew that under Chairman Mao and under communism, the church had almost been, we thought, eradicated. But in reality, there was a huge movement still going on and that there were millions and millions of people who still believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord. And we can track this back to one person who lived a hundred years before all that happened. This person, Hudson Taylor, who grew up in England and who literally, I've never seen anyone like this. He seemed to be placed on earth for one purpose, literally sent to earth with one mission in life, and that was to be a missionary to China. Yet when his parents were pregnant with Hudson Taylor, they prayed that God would use him to take the gospel to China. And it, it wasn't long after he was born and you know grew into young men that he made declarations of his own, of, of his calling to be a missionary in China. Yeah, when he was a young man, when he was an adolescent, he actually left the faith for a very short time and he picked up a gospel tract and he was really just reading it to kill time. He was bored one day, but by the end of the gospel tract, he had actually came to Christ. And in that moment, he goes, I need to be a missionary to China. He realized that's what, that's what God wanted him to do. And this was, or to remind you, back in the 1850s of England, this is in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, and he, he actually comes into contact with some other missionaries. They kind of inspire him, and he actually comes into contact with another preacher from our show, uh, George Mueller, who also pushes him in this direction as well. Yeah, there's a, a great story that I love, possibly apocryphal. It might be true, it might not be. This legend of uh, Hudson Taylor when he was training to be a doctor in China, uh, he was examining this dead body that had a, a bad disease that killed it, um, and he got a cut on him. And the doctors said, go home. Go home and spend time with your families. Get your affairs in order because you'll be dead by morning. Uh, the disease was that dangerous. It was that deadly. And uh, Taylor supposedly was quoted saying, although I'd be happy to go and be with the Lord, I'm sure he has great plans for me in China to be a missionary. And he goes home and gets, he does get tremendously sick, but he doesn't die. All the other nurses that handled that body, they did end up dying, but, but God preserved Hudson Taylor. When Hudson Taylor arrives in Shanghai, he ends up in China during the middle of a huge civil war that was much larger than the United States of America's. It lasts for 14 years. It displaces, moves people, 100 million people out of their homes. It's the Taiping Rebellion which uh, was centered right around Shanghai in this entire region where he's landing, and it becomes the bloodiest event in the 1800s. Yeah, it's estimated that 20 to 30 million people 
died during this rebellion, 20 to 30 million people. And and there's many layers to this rebellion and, and, and what happened to it over the years, but it was largely the cause of this religious cult that happened by, it was a man that believed he was Jesus's brother. Um, and he took over several cities and after he died, after 15 years of fighting, he had other followers that rose up and also claimed to be God and King. And eventually, Britain and France had to had to bring in their forces to help stabilize Shanghai and keep it from going under. And it is in this era that a 21-year-old Hudson Taylor arrives and has to preach the gospel. I mean, imagine during that time what it would be like to try and tell people about Jesus Christ. And like, yeah, Jesus Christ, his brother's over there. No, 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 the real Jesus Christ. And uh, Hudson Taylor is so close to this war, he's so close to the action, that he actually uh, sends home a cannonball that just nearly took off his head. It was it was really close. He sends it back to England. He goes, yeah, this almost took off my head while I was preaching one day. And he, so he becomes, another thing he becomes really known for is he becomes one of the first missionaries to dress as Chinese locals do and to wear their haircuts to, to learn their language really well. He realized that nobody was coming to hear him speak because it was just a westernized European Christianity and they didn't see the point. So he decided to drop everything he could that made him look like a westernized European and come to them as much as he could as a Chinese person and say, look, we're the same. I get you. I just I had this really important thing about Jesus Christ I need to tell you. He instructs the other missionaries he works with to do that, he ends up founding this group called China Inland Mission, and he tells them, look, this is how we're going to spread gospel. We're not going to worry about bringing European stuff to them. We're just going to, we're going to focus really much, really on the Jesus Christ and the gospel part of it. And this group, China Inland Mission, is still around today. They call themselves Overseas Missionary Fellowship now, and they're still a big mission organization in Asia. Yeah, several of his family members become missionaries to China, and even his great-great-grandson, James Hudson Taylor the Fourth is still to this day working with the ministry that is great 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 no just two great two greats and a grand great great grandfather yes. uh, organized back in China. Yeah, he he's uh, he starts a family there. He actually marries a special woman. Her name is uh, Maria Jane Dyer, and she's actually the orphaned daughter of Samuel Dyer, who's another big missionary who was working in the area. Uh, they lose some children, but they do start this family. And they also, while they're in the area, they on and off adopt children. It's a hard time for them, and their influence is slowly growing. We think of Hudson Taylor, and we think of the big things he did and how he changed the world. But there were decades where, honestly, they felt no real success. It was very slowly moving over there. And a lot of times people would call him just extreme and too hard and too rigorous. And people would get burned out working under him because he was just so about this mission that he was on. And he himself would get him, get sick over and over again, pushing himself so hard. But slowly over time, they found uh, that they were making successful inroads into China. By 1887, he had led over 100 missionaries into China, and he continued to grow. Uh, he became deeply respected by the Chinese people there, to the point where Chinese tourists would go and visit his hometown in his honor. But he gave up a lot in the process. Out of the eight children that he had, four of them didn't make it past the age of 10. And out of the four that did survive, one of his daughters did end up dying and leaving behind four children herself. And when the Boxer Rebellion finally came up, it took quite a toll on Hudson Taylor, both mentally and physically. In this sermon, The Source of Power, Hudson Taylor discusses what it was that gave him, this man who was destined to be a Christian missionary to China, no matter what the obstacle, what gave him his strength and his perseverance. 
And I think you'll find it's more about just honestly taking God's calling to the lost seriously than it is anything else, really. He truly loved and gave up his time, his life, and his resources to just pursue Chinese unbelievers. That love of the lost would end up making such a difference that inspires countless missionaries and believers even to today. Our subject this morning is the source of power for Christian missions. The strength of a chain is limited to that of its weakest link. If we connected with the source of power by a chain, the weakest link will be the limit to which we can take hold of it. But if our connection is direct and immediate, there's no hindrance to the exercise of the mighty power of God. God himself is the great source of power. It's his possession. Power belongs to God and he manifested according to his sovereign will. Yet not in an erratic or arbitrary manner, but according to his declared purposes and promises. God tells us by his prophet Daniel that the people that do know their God shall be strong and do mighty deeds, and they that understand among the people will instruct many. If it be ordinarily true that knowledge is power, it's supremely true in the case of the knowledge of God. Those who know their God do not attempt to do something, they just do them. We shall search the scriptures in vain from Genesis to Revelation for any command to attempt to do anything. God's commands are always do this. His prohibitions are always do not do this. If we believe the command to be from God, our only course is to obey and the action must always be successful. God's power is available power. We're a supernatural people, born again by a supernatural birth, kept by a supernatural power, sustained on supernatural food, taught by a supernatural teacher from a supernatural book. We're led by a supernatural captain in right paths to assured victories. The risen Savior, as he ascended on high, said, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go you, therefore. Disciple, baptize, teach all nations, and look, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And again, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost is upon you. Not many days after this, in answer to united and continued prayer, the Holy Ghost did come upon them, and they were all filled. Praise God, he remains with us still. He himself is the power. Today, he is as truly available and as mighty in power as he was on the day of Pentecost. But has the whole church ever, since the days before Pentecost, put aside every other work and waited for him for ten days that that power might be manifested? Has there not been a source of failure here? We've given too much attention to methods and to machinery and to resources and too little to the source of power, the filling of the Holy Ghost, this, I think you'll agree with me, is the greatest weakness, has been the greatest weakness of our service in the past, and unless remedied will be the great weakness in the future. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. If we're not filled, we're living in disobedience and sin. And the cause of our sin is the cause of Israel's sin of old, is the sin of unbelief. It's not lost time to wait upon God. I refer to a small gathering of about a dozen men in which I was permitted to take part some years ago and 
November 1886. We in the China Inland Mission were feeling greatly the need of divine guidance in the matter of organization in the field and in the matter of reinforcements. And we came together before our conference to spend eight days in united waiting upon God, four alternate days being days of fasting as well as prayer. This was November 1886 when we gathered together. We were led to pray for 100 missionaries to be sent out by our English board in the year 1887 from January to December. And further than this, our income had not been elastic for some years. It had been about 22,000 pounds, and we were led in connection with that forward movement to ask God for 10,000 pounds, say $50,000, in addition to the income of the previous year. More than this, we were guided to pray that this might be given in large sums, so that the force of our staff might not be unduly occupied in the acknowledgement of contributions. What was the result? God sent us offers of service from over 600 men and women during the following year, and those who were deemed to be ready and suitable were accepted, and then were sent out to China. And it proved that at the end of the year, exactly 100 had gone. What about the income? God did not give us exactly the 10,000 pounds we asked for, but he gave us 11,000 pounds. And that 11,000 pounds came in 11 contributions. The smallest was 500 pounds, say about $2,500. The largest was $12,500 or 2,500 pounds. We had a thanksgiving for the men and the money that were coming in November 1886 but they were all received and sent out before the end of December 1887. The power of the living God is available power. We may call upon him in the name of Christ with the assurance that if we are taught by the Spirit in our prayers, those prayers will be answered. God's the ultimate source of power, and faith is the hand which lays hold on God. And how important is that hand? If the contact of faith with the living God be to any extent broken, may it not again be true as in the days of his flesh when he could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief? How important is faith? And what is this so essential faith? Is it not simply the recognition of and reliance upon God's faithfulness? Is it not simply reliance on the fact that faithful is he who promised who also will do it? With this faith and lively exercise, God may manifest himself as he never has done. We're living in days of wonderful missionary successes, but we may see far more wonderful things in days to come. Another important thought, a source of power, the church. It's not an isolated number of units, but an organized body. I can by no possibility get my hand four feet in front of my body. If my hand is to rescue a drowning man, the whole body must cooperate. Individuals have through the ages and are at present doing all that's in their power, but the church as a whole must rise to its dignity and realize its responsibility to go forward. We must all go into all the world and not confine our sympathies and interests to this sphere or that sphere of labor. Not only must the missionaries suffer in going forth from loving and beloved homes and their parents and friends and giving them up, but the church must go forward in self-denial to the point of suffering. Redemptive work, soul-saving work, cannot be carried out without suffering. 
If we're simply to pray to the extent of a simple, pleasant, and enjoyable exercise and know nothing of watching in prayer and of weariness in prayer, we shall not draw down the blessing that we may. We shall not sustain our missionaries who are overwhelmed with the appalling darkness of heathenism. We shall not even sufficiently maintain the spiritual life of our own souls. We must serve God even to the point of suffering. And each one ask himself, in what degree, in what point am I extending by personal suffering, by personal self-denial to the point of pain, the kingdom of Christ? The whole church must realize this. The hand alone cannot save dying humanity. The hand cannot alone deliver man. The body must cooperate with the hand if the hand is to rescue the perishing. Beloved, you whose duty it is to remain at home are equally sharers with those who go into the mission fields in this work. Yours the responsibility. Yours equally to share in the reward when Christ is glorified and his kingdom is everywhere made known. It's very important fact for us all to bear in mind that as we've already been reminded, the command of the Great Commission was not given to a limited class. It was given to the whole church and we all have our share in the responsibility. Let us then practically contemplate for a few moments briefly the secure basis of Christian missions and the sources and the channels of their power. First, we have already been brought before us in eloquent language, the divine assurance and commission, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go thee therefore, and look, I am with you always. Or as in Mark, Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This implies the duty of evangelizing each generation in its own generation. The only time when men can be evangelized is the time of their life. But in view of this, how solemn the position of the world and how solemn our responsibility. Today, the Chinese are passing away at the rate of a million a month, dying without God today. Oh, what does this mean? Those only know who have seen the darkness of a lost soul's deathbed. Those only who know something of the terrors of a lost soul's heart looking forward to the next life, the horrors of which they faintly depict to themselves and expect them to be far worse than their most terrible imaginings. The darkness of heathenism, the suffering of the lost soul, with the full knowledge that they are sinners, there's no question about that in the lost soul's mind, they know they're sinners, and they know that sin brings about with it inevitable consequences. The Chinese proverb is that evil brings the evil reward, and good brings the good reward. If the reward has not come, it's because that time has not come. Come it will most surely, and when we imagine how these people have not only a fearful anticipation of judgment to come, they know it's coming. Something has taught them this. Every man knows it in his own heart, but they are, as Paul says, without hope and without God in the world. Even unconverted people are not hopeless in Christ's lands. They know there's a Savior. They have some hope that he may accept them. They have some belief that if not earlier, even in their last moments, they may have an opportunity of repentance and acceptance. But the heathen are without hope. They know no God who can pardon sin. They know no power that can deliver from the penal consequences of sin any more than they know how to be delivered from its love and power without hope in the world. We have the power of a divine command. And there is another power, a power far too little appreciated and sought after, 
the power of self-emptying and unresisting suffering. We've tried to do, many of us, as much good as we felt we could easily do or conveniently do, but there's a wonderful power when the love of God in the heart raises us to the point where we are ready to suffer. And with Paul, we desire to know him in the power of his resurrection, which implies the death of self and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. It's ever true that what costs little is worth little. Then how little some of our service must have been worth. If it's true in anything, it's especially true in divine things that what costs little is worth little. It's a serious and difficult problem very frequently to know how far we should look and accept the protection of our governments or their vindication in case of riot or persecution. I've seen both plans tried. I, I've never seen the plan in the long run successful of demanding help and vindication from man. Whenever I've traced the result in the long run, there has been more harm done than good. And I've never seen the willingness to suffer and leave God to vindicate his own cause, his own people and their rights, where the result has not been very beneficial if there has not been rest and faith in him. And praise God, I have known a number of such instances in the mission field. I have known of persecution and riots that have never been reported, never been published in any papers anywhere, have not been known by many, even of those who are connected with the same mission, and wherever the course has been taken of just leaving God to vindicate and leaving God to restrain and leaving God to help, the issue has been marvelously successful, and it has led to great joy and great helpfulness. This is a power which God has given us, which sometimes we may leave out of account. One other power is the gospel itself. The gospel itself is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. Now, there, there are different ways of preaching the gospel. There's the plan of preaching the gospel and looking forward to the gradual enlightenment of the people, to their being saved, as it were, by a process of gradual instruction and preaching. And there's another method of preaching the gospel, believing it to be the power of God unto salvation, preaching it in the expectation that he who first brought light out of darkness can all at once and instantly take the darkest heart and create life within it, that is the message that is successful. It's been my privilege to know many Christians, I'm speaking within bounds when I say a hundred, who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior the first time they ever heard of him. The gospel itself is the power of God to salvation. There are many other powers which time forbids our referring to, but God has not left us without power for our enterprise. There's the power of sympathy, of love, the power of adaptability, and most of all, the wonderful power of prayer, which might well be the subject of a whole paper. Is not the power of prayer very much the gauge of our power to do God's work successfully anywhere and under any circumstances? This power, the marvelous power, will bear much more attention than we have ever given it. We may well thank God that he has not left us a difficult service without providing us abundant power, adequate power, and resources for its discharge for all time, even to the end of the world. Amen and amen. Hudson Taylor, in a lot of ways, reminds me of George Mueller, you know, who's someone else that we did an episode of Revive Thoughts on. Um, and, you know, that makes sense because he was directly inspired 
by George Mueller per his own words. Um, and it's, it's that faith that, that we see in both George Mueller and Hudson Taylor that uh, is really inspiring. The faith that Hudson Taylor has to, to go into a country with, with nothing, um, with the full confidence that God is going to use him to, to do great things and to share the gospel. It's awesome to see him preach this sermon at the end of his life, right? That he's looking back on what the Lord has done over all, through, throughout the 1800s. We don't always get that perspective. We don't always get to see that reflection, that analysis of th- this is what we had faith for, and this is how God provided. This is those numbers that, that we see. He can quantify it. See, these is how many missionaries came about by that point. Because we had faith, this is how the Lord worked. This is how the Lord moved. Um, and it's it's refreshing. It's it's encouraging to see. Um, and I'm glad that Hudson Taylor got to see it towards the end of his life. You got to look back on and reflect all the ways that God used him and all the ways that God spread the gospel there in China. And and how did he get so successful? Like, what was his thing? And he says, he basically, he does something really unique. You know, he doesn't have, like, a method. He specifically says, we give too much attention to methods. We spend too much time looking at machinery and resources and trying to think up our own models. He just says, we spend too little time waiting for the Holy Ghost, waiting for the Holy Spirit, just trusting in God. Uh, he asks this question in the middle of the sermon. He says, has the whole church ever, since the days before Pentecost, put aside everything else and just waited for God for 10 days since Pentecost. And it's so true. Like we always are like, let's do this for, let's do this for other people. Let's get in, let's get in there and do something. And we think about how we can do it. We never just wait for God and say, okay, we want to do this thing. Now let's just wait and let the Holy Spirit direct us. And I just love this idea that again, we see this with some of our other revive thought speakers too, that they don't tell you, here's all the things I did. They just really step aside and say, Jesus and God is the only way you're going to get it done. You really need to just wait on him and trust in him and really believe in him and his work. And then one other thing other I wanted to add is just, I, I said it right before the sermon started, but his love for the lost. It, 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 I imagine when he was going through the war in Shanghai, when he was going through the loss of his children, that it was just this unstoppable love to see non-believers come to Christ that must have really kept him going through those dark times. Today's sermon was narrated by Dr. Mike Dodds. If you like today's episode, you can find out more about Hudson Taylor and view a transcript of the sermon today at revivethoughts.com. We also hope that you will give us a like on Instagram or Facebook or wherever it is that you enjoy social media. And we also hope that you can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you are. Five stars really does help and goes a long way. And please subscribe for future episodes of Revive Thoughts. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. On the In Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world, ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse, how to not hate your in-laws, ways to save money for your next vacation, and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships. Join us, Daniel and Christina M. as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to imbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.